according to the text last week. Thank you for letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, for instructing each other this morning in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. My heart is already encouraged. I hope yours is as well as we meditate on this concept this morning of forgiveness. We'll reiterate by reading verse 13. Paul said to the Colossians, he said, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. We were called last week toward virtue, and not just any virtue, not just any morality, but the virtue and the morality of Christ himself, because we have our life bound up in his own. And so we look to him, we look to his character, to see how we would be called to live. And there was that list of five virtues, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering, And then a sixth at the end, love. Above all these, put on love. And so we looked at that, and in that center section, which is verse 13, bearing with and forgiving one another, we have displayed a few things. First and foremost, I think, is the application of the virtues. This is one of the premier demonstrations that one is a Christian and that we exist in the family of God, is that we forgive each other. Secondly, we see the foundational structure of Christian ethics. And that is the second half of verse 13. Even as Christ forgave, so we forgive each other. That the ethical structure of the Christian faith is based first and foremost upon the person, the virtue, the ethic of Jesus himself. And what he has done toward us. So it's important then, I would think, for us to take a look at God's forgiveness toward us, uh, that we might understand how we're to forgive each other. It's a bit of a weaving journey this morning. Again, we're going to begin by looking at the two primary words for forgiveness in the New Testament. And then we're going to go back to Matthew 18. We're not exegeting Matthew 18 exactly, but we're we're going to look at each of the scenes and apply principles of of forgiveness. And then at the end, uh, ask an essential question Basically, what should we do with those who are unrepentant? What about those who do not desire forgiveness? And how should we interact as Christians in that regard? So that's kind of where we're going this morning. Uh, two Greek words for you. The first is aphiemi. This word is used about 150 times in the New Testament. This is the normal word that the New Testament authors, particularly in the Gospels, you'll see this word rise to prominence. And the very interesting thing about this word is that of the about 150 times it's used, only a third of those, less than 50 of them, concern forgiveness. What that should clue us into is that the range of meaning of this word is very broad. It's very wide. So just like our word for hand is quite broad, it could be a hand, or you might say, give me a hand, or you have a hand of playing cards or something like that. Here, the semantic range of a me is quite broad. And it's not, the foundational idea of the word is not how we think of forgiveness. It's really a spatial word 
that refers to how you interact with a person or an object in space. So I'll use even this kind of pulpit as an example. It could be that we would send something away. So I'm going to send the pulpit away. It must depart from me. Uh, Jesus, this could be of a, of a personal object or an impersonal object, like in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus gave up or he sent away his spirit on the cross. Ironically, even this word is used to describe divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 11, that you would send the other away as is, is an image of divorcing, okay? So it could be to send something away. The second would be to uh, release it. And here is where the idea of forgiveness is developed, is in the second definition, to release, meaning what am, what am I releasing? It's like, well, I'm going to let the pulpit go of an obligation that it has toward me. I'm going to set it, like, out. I'm going to cast it away. I'm going to release the pulpit from an obligation, perhaps moral, perhaps legal, may even cancel the consequence of that legal or moral obligation. So, yes, to cancel a debt or to pardon would be a good word. Release of an obligation, moral or legal. Could also be that we move away. So, I am going to remove myself, meaning uh, you could walk out of the house, you could leave the church, you could walk away from something and leave the pulpit behind, leave whatever it was behind. Now that, would be the, that, that would be pairing it with the second one. So, so moving away would be me walking away. Leaving behind would be concerning the pulpit. I'm going to let it be where it is. Uh, and, that, and that final one, um, leave it be, would be something like, I'm going to let it stay for now. I'm going to tolerate it. Uh, you have my permission to stay here, pulpit. I'm not going to remove you just yet. That's sort of an idea. So it, it could be uh, positive, it could be negative, it could be me leaving, it could be the thing leaving, it could, it's all sorts of things, but you see how they're all sort of related around proximity to something. How associated you are with it, whether it is towards you or away from you, or you are toward it or away from it, that kind of an idea. Now, why talk through all this? We'll bring this up at the very end. Because the semantic, the broadness of Ephemi may have, may produce some clarity for us concerning the question, should we forgive someone who's unrepentant? So it's a very broad word, um, a lot of movement, right? And the words then would find their meaning. Which one of these is he talking about? They would find their meaning in the context in which the word is placed. But you can see uh, that we would have a, quite a wide variety of words to explain what they did in one word. Does that make sense? So, this is the most common word in the New Testament to describe forgiveness, but it is not the one that is found here in Colossians chapter 3, nor is it really the one that Paul uses. Paul uses the second word. He only uses a fit in me one, one time explicitly, a related word two other times. And even then, <laughs> in the time he's explicitly using a fit, I mean, he's quoting David in the, in the Psalms. So he's not even using it himself. So his, his favorite word is charizomai. Now, if you know a, a little bit or if you've heard some Greek words before, you may see at the beginning of that you have another word, charis, which is grace. So this is a releasing of pardon, 
related to the graciousness of the one releasing. Okay, so it could be, there's a few different ways this word is used, but they're all related to one another. So it could just be the free gift of someone in, in anything, like a, just a benevolent guy. If we were to write a tribute to one of our favorite people, we might say they were just an overall wonderful, generous, giving kind of an individual. It can be particularly used, like in the Matthew 18 concept, to say, I'm, re- I'm forgiving your debt. I'm canceling this debt. So I'm graciously giving you back all that you owed me. I'm no longer requiring it from you. And then you can see how that would very nicely transition to a gracious pardon, forgiveness. That we forgive wrongdoing with each other with a spirit of grace, very generously, joyfully, that kind of an idea. So here... Colossians 3 and in the parallel passage in Ephesians 4, 32, Paul emphasizes that we as Christians are intended to delight in being like Jesus by forgiving each other. The foundation for why we would do that, again, remember the building of the structure of the Christian ethic, the foundation of why we would graciously forgive is that we have been graciously forgiven. Not primarily because they confessed or they meant a confession or they deserve it. Those are not the foundational motivations in the Christian ethic. It is what Christ has done for us. So, those are the two words. With those in mind, let's move to Matthew chapter 18. And a few words of... Uh, kind of setting up the story, where it finds its place and what's happening here. The disciples are, are conversing, uh, disagreeing even, concerning the frequency of forgiving a brother. So that's the question that Peter raises in verse 21, which is we're really going to look at the parable of the unforgiving servant. Okay, so Peter raises this question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Before we are quick to judge Peter, this is a very practical question. It's a repeat offender. That's the idea. It's someone who continues to do the very thing that they have confessed, and they continue confessing it. So within the structure of this body of the sermon, we want to keep in mind that this regards someone who is expressing confession for their sin. They are brought low. They are asking and seeking you for forgiveness. How often should you forgive that person if they continue to do it? Now, traditional rabbinical laws would say three times. Because after all, we have to be reasonable about this, right? We can't, this is not something that we just let someone continue doing and doing. No, there's going to be a time where we say, no, I, I no longer forgive you by the fact that you have continued offending is evidence that you aren't sorry. Okay, so Peter's suggestion is actually quite generous. It's over double what would be tradition. He says seven, and he perhaps even suggests this number of completeness, that we would completely forgive them. It's a good suggestion and a very practical question. Jesus' response is pretty stunning. It's, a, it's not what anyone would have expected. And he says, no, Peter, not, not seven. He says 70 times seven. 490 times not to be tallied, but to communicate endless forgiveness for the confessor, 
And then he tells a story. So this parable, keep in mind that parables, Jesus is making up this story to, tell, to, to prove an instructive point. And in this story, uh, it's important that we not connect too many of the dots to say, okay, so in the story, God is the king, and I am the one he forgave, and my brother at church is the one that I'm not forgiving. Now, those are application points of the sermon, of Jesus' sermon, of his parable. That's how he's instructing us to think generally. But he has, he has not made the connection. And in the story, I'm telling you, the rich man is like God. Because in the story, the rich man does some things that God would not do. So we need to be careful not to draw one-to-one comparisons, but to see parallels, not uh, unintended equal signs. Okay? So three scenes found here. Let's look at the first. Um, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, verse 23, is like a certain king. Okay? And he wants to settle his debts. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. He was not able to pay, so his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He released him, and he forgave him the debt. So there's this mighty, very rich king who has a variety of servants, and he's bringing them to account to settle everything on this day. Now, the servant that's brought to him, this amount of money, this 10,000 talents, this would be an inestimable sum. We could not comprehend this amount of money. It's like our government's debt. It's, we, what even is that? How big of a number is that? I, I cannot comprehend that. This is hundreds of thousands of lifetimes of labor. I, it's, it's unpayable. As a child might say, millions of gazillions. Like, it's just, you can't fathom it. That's how much money is represented here. And so his plea, as he bows down and he says, I will pay it. I will pay it. I'll pay the whole thing. There's no possible way that that's true. It's his emotion. It's his desire to not be sold. He's desperate. And the king moved with compassion. That's our, that's our key there. He erases his debt. Think back in Colossians, right? No more handwriting of legal or moral requirements to the king. They've been completely erased. And this man experiences freedom. Like, can you imagine if it was you that owed trillions of dollars? Mm. And to have that just removed, gone in a moment, based on benevolence. Wow, and compassion. Okay, so that's the, that's the setup. Now, what we want to do is just after each scene draw a few um, parallels, comparisons. So let us consider what occurs when God forgives a sinner. When God forgives a sinner, (laughs) well, think of us. I mean, we once did owe a mighty king a billion gazillion dollars to. An infinite, eternal debt. 
And I believe that's one of the points Jesus is trying to make by stating a number that's beyond their imagination. It's eternal. It can't be weighed. There's no scale big enough. And so we're reminded of redemption that tells us the powerful ending to our own story. As the song, the old hymn says, you know, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And so as we reiterate these truths, I pray that it will encourage you, right? We have this eternal, holy, offended God. That when sin has entered the equation, we've offended one who never began. He has always been. He is perfect in his character, his virtue, and his activity. He is God himself. That is what makes our debt inestimable, is is his eternality and his holiness makes an offense against him an eternal offense, which makes punishment for that sin an eternal punishment. This is where we construct theologically, and as Jesus explains quite often throughout the Gospels, the reality of an eternal hell. But his compassion, when he saw our inestimable debt, and even if we were to bow down and say, I'll pay it, I'll pay it, I'll pay it, he smiles. You can't, you can't do that. You can't pay it. There is no paying this debt. And so in redemption, God himself graciously offered a pardon for all debts to all people in the cross of Christ. This is his offer on the cross. And then he breathes into dead-natured sinners the life of God who confess their sin and embrace the gift of a not guilty nature. The debt is erased. This infinite amount of sin, this, the, our own personal past, present, and future sins in a moment, washed by the blood of Christ on the cross. They're gone. A wholesale erasure has occurred of a debt so great we could not even begin to imagine it. A few important notes about God and forgiveness. As we think about forgiveness as a concept, one of a few of the reasons we wanted to take a moment today to think about this is the relationship between forgiveness and justice. How do those meet? And with God, well, God is the judge, is he? Isn't he? He is good and he must be just. And So as Josh prayed this morning in his opening prayer, confession, adoration, God is not a happy-go-lucky, everyone-gets-out-of-jail-free judge who is sweet and appears to be kind. Oh, you poor dear, I know it's hard. I know you didn't mean it. Come on, let's get you better. Why don't, well, let's let's erase this debt. Let's, Let's get you better. Would that be a just judge? By no means. God does not overlook offenses. This may be a silly illustration, it is, I know, but childhood movie of mine, National Treasure. There's a stealing of the Declaration of Independence because there's a treasure map on the back of it. And at the very end of the movie, once the culprit is caught, the FBI agent says, door number one, you go to prison for a very long time. Door number two, you give back the Declaration of Independence and you still go to jail 
for a very long time. He responds, is, is, is there a door that doesn't involve me going to prison? And the FBI agent responds, he says, someone has to go to prison, Ben. Someone has to go to prison. And there's a truth to that, that in an offense to have justice, there must be recompense, there must be payment for that sin. So God does not overlook offenses. To release a sinner from punishment, he has transferred their punishment to Christ. In my place he did suffer, in my place became sin. So God may be in his character long-suffering in dealing out consequences, gracious and compassionate in providing an eternal and alternate life sentence for the justly accused, but he is never, never unjust. So forgiveness and justice are, are wed in Christ and in God's perspective of forgiveness. Think about God and reconciliation, right? We've talked through this in Colossians a bit. Reconciliation, the removal of enmity. Isn't that somehow related to forgiveness? Well, certainly with God, it is. And so consider the reality of, of Colossians that he said he removed our enmity by the blood of his cross. He's made peace by the blood of his cross. So this is part and parcel of how God forgives. That when the door of forgiveness is passed through by a sinner, relational peace with God is always and forever accomplished. There is no such thing, it's important, there is no such thing as someone who is forgiven by God and not at peace with God. No one that God forgives goes to hell. No one that God forgives is eternally punished. One other thought about God and forgiveness, and that is considering God and remembering. You've often heard, I'm sure, forgive and forget, which introduces this very passive and human flaw into the equation that we would let these past occurrences slip our mind just sort of disappear into the old, into what was. That's not how God interacts with our sin, even once it's pardoned. God knows everything. He never forgets anything. And so in the grand drama of redemption, our sin has not slipped his mind. We read it this morning in our call to worship, Psalm 103. Instead, what he has done is he has, as far as the east is from the west... That's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. Or Psalm 32, which we'll read in, in wholeness in, in uh, prayer service, begins, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So God does not forget. He removes sin from us. Scene number two, back to Matthew 18. Let's take a look at this recently forgiven servant. And what does he do? He should walk out rejoicing, forgive anyone who is even in any degree indebted to him, and he should live a life of joy and freedom. That's what he should do. What does he do? But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, 
And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And so the servant, he walks out of the presence of his gracious king and he goes headhunting. He finds a fellow peer, I mean, a fellow servant, namely a peer. And he owes him a significant amount, right? It's albeit a payable one, an understandable one, a comprehensible one. Let's call it $25,000. Still a lot, but nothing comparable to billions of gazillions. And he aggressively grabs this man by the throat and he begins choking him. And he says, give it to me. Pay me. You owe me. This is right. This is just. The man, as he had previously done, pleads to him, falls at his feet, begs him, have patience with me and I will pay you all, saying something that very well could be true in comparison to the desperate lie he had just spun in front of the king. Verse 30, and he would not. No. I demand payment. Now, I love verse 31. Everybody gets it. We all are here getting it. If we're all fellow servants with this guy, we're like, what are you doing? What, do you not understand? We all just heard what he did. And here you are. And so they see what he's done and they're very grieved. And they come and tell their master, like, we can't even understand what's happening right now. But this is what's going on right outside. As soon as he left, here's what he did. Okay? So let's draw some parallels. This is not any longer God's forgiveness of a sinner. This is a sinner's forgiveness of a sinner. Let's call it the family of faith. Say those who have been forgiven. How we interact with one another. Interpersonal Christian forgiveness, servant to servant. Confession, even being president, present. Okay? If, if confession were not present, we would be back to an earlier portion of Matthew 18 where he says if you go and you, you present an offense and they don't confess, here is, here's a step-by-step process. We'll revisit that in a moment. Okay, so there's confession, even as there was in this text. Okay? So my family, my dear ones, we, we are the forgiven that's, that's who we are. I am and we are a family of faith who's been pardoned. God removed our infinite debt against Him. And so within the family of God, within our family of faith, we must categorically, like based on principle, we must maintain the joyful habit of forgiveness as we mirror the compassion of God towards us with each other. We must do that. Keep in mind that within the family of faith, God already forgave your brother for what he did against you. He's categorically forgiven. And so as we adopt this perspective, we're simply agreeing with him. So let us join with God himself. Let us join the divine and forgive. A few important principles about our forgiveness. Forgiveness in the family of faith is unlimited. That's a huge statement. That's the very point of the story. Forgiveness in the family of faith is unlimited. This is the concept that inspired this parable. There is no number of offenses 
that could be compiled from one human to another human that outweighs the eternal debt that God already forgave you. Therefore, it follows logically and theologically that our forgiveness toward confessing brothers is unlimited. To recalculate an offense for which someone has confessed as unforgivable. No, I've done my, you know, that's one too many. That's, we're, we're past the point of no return here. To calculate an offense as unforgivable is to recalculate the debt that you were owed as minimal. Grace in its greatness and sin in its darkness are reduced when we refuse to forgive. God wasn't that generous to me. I wasn't that bad. And we forget who we were. So it is unlimited. Forgiveness is also, in the family of faith, urgent. We're not intended to live with outstanding conflict. That's not, that's not who we are together in Christ. Um, reconciliation is intended to happen early and often. That's the Christian pattern. So this is even present in our church covenant. If you're like, no, I don't like that idea. <laughs> we, are, we, we promise this to each other. The very end of our covenant, it says that we will be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior, Christian ethic, to secure it, reconciliation, without delay. Confession and forgiveness happens early and often in our family. This is uh, partially based on a principle from Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. This is a matter of urgency. Go, make the wrong right, and then return and worship. Okay, so it is unlimited, it is urgent. Thirdly, forgiveness in the family of faith involves reconciliation. So patterned after our king, when one opens between brothers, when one opens the generous package, the gift of forgiveness, then inside you would find reconciliation and interpersonal peace, that we would be at peace with each other. It may not be in the same moment, but this is the, the habit and pattern of our family. Okay? The, the in, interpersonal peace is a part of forgiveness. They're linked. Once again, we are living inside of the eternal reality of union with Christ on the outside. Okay? So because He is all, He's the most important, and He's in us all, then we would be at peace with one another. We would have unity. More on that in the last category. Forgiveness in the family of faith involves confession. So we're not only the forgiven, are we? We're also, caveat, by the grace of God, by, I believe, regeneration and new life, we are also the confessors. We are people who admit that we are sinners. We are people who admit that we have done wrong. And so confession is an essential part of this equation as well. The disposition of humility 
and acknowledging sin must be maintained as we walk in Christ. That wasn't something that got you in the door. It is the character of a Christian. I think this finds particular roots in, in marriage and in parenting. These are ways that Paul's about to move. The next text, were we to just take the next text from last week to today, we would be in the family of faith. He moves Christian virtues toward parent-children relationships and toward husband-wife relationships. And so, confession and repentance in the family of faith, if you are covenanted today with a believing spouse and are part of this family of faith, then your responsibility is first to forgive them and then to forgive your other brothers and sisters so that we would have this habit of confession that we would have this practice, not just saying, you know, I'm sorry, but that we understand the implications of our sin, that we're able to move when we've sinned and address the people that are involved in it. And we're not seeking to make excuses. And we can talk specifically about what we've done. We'll say it out loud. This is how I offended you. And I need your forgiveness. Would you please forgive me? And I will be willing to accept the consequences of sin that I have committed, and I will change my behavior in the future. All of this is a robust pattern of confession that is really the first step, God willing, in this cycle of Christian and brotherly forgiveness. Scene number three gives us a brief warning. After the servants go and tell the master, he calls his servant back in in verse 32, and he calls him a wicked servant. He's angry, as he should be. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Here's one of the most important points in which we don't draw one-to-one between the king and God because God does not undo forgiveness. Neither is purgatory the intended uh, conclusion from the parable. So it's not a theological point about losing pardon, but it is emphasizing the reality that those who have received forgiveness from an infinite eternal debt will most certainly forgive those who are indebted to them, even if the charge is significant. If we don't forgive, we're not forgiven. It's the natural outflow of someone who has received this amount of grace. This is one of the simplest and truest tests of genuine faith. Now, a side note, this is also one of the reasons that forgiveness in the world at large is such a strange concept. (laughs) Look in the world around you. Do they understand forgiveness? Not at all. Not a little bit. You take your pound of flesh. This is alien. This is unnatural. This is like a 12-year-old becoming the president or like Gimli shooting a bow And we sit up and we say, something is not right. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow. The unforgiven attempting forgiveness is haphazard, misshapen, and incomplete. 
So, as the forgiven family, united in Christ, we must forgive. We're living out the reality of Christ above us and Christ in us. Agree about your sin and agree about our forgiveness and forgive your brother. A few notes about the contrast between these two categories. So, we have, we talked about God's forgiving of a sinner and then sinners forgiving of each other. Now, there's a, there's a couple important distinctions, ways that these two are not the same. First, our forgiveness toward each other is not judicial. God is the judge. As the judge, He has maintained the right to issue a correct verdict 100% of the time. That is not our role in relationship to each other, to be the judge. In fact, even in human relationships, it is not our role to be the judge. God has instituted government, intended to uphold His standards of justice, which it does sloppily, very poorly, very broken, very, well, we've seen this in the, in the minor prophets, haven't we? Even the people of God did this. They broke His law. They forgot it. The judges and the, and the priests and the leaders, they took for themselves. They fattened their belts. This happens today. It's one of the most frustrating, broken realities of our life today. But this is not our role in relationship to each other. Uh, by way of illustration, um, if there was someone that took the life of another, and the, the family of the grieving, the grieving family, the one who's been offended, whose family member's life has been taken, and they respond with grace, they respond with kindness, and they walk into a courtroom to the judge and they say, Judge, I just want you to know our family has forgiven the offender. We would very clearly understand that the judge does not say, Oh, well, in that case, not guilty. They just said, You're forgiven. No, no, there's a difference here, isn't there? God has instituted a system of justice, and so our relational interaction is not, it's not judicial. Neither is it in the same way that God has forgiven us wholesale. That makes sense that when I, if I offend you and, and I speak to you concerning my offense and you forgive me, you've not forgiven me all my offenses. You forgave me that offense. And so while the pattern uh, that this is the disposition that we would forgive and forgive and forgive time and time again, we're not forgiving past, present, and future sins in our interaction with one another. Third, one of the unique things, we've made this clear, I think, already, God does not overlook offenses, but the Christian can. Christian can call, be called to overlook offense because we're not the just judge, are we? That love would cover a multitude of sins. First Peter 4, 8, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. This is why we don't, necessarily, we don't require a confession for forgiveness. There are many things that we let go. We say, it's covered. The debt is already gone. Even perhaps as soon as it was incurred. This is a good good quality of the Christian family. Proverbs 19.11 describes it this way. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Meaning you're going to endure offenses that you could tally. You're going to be slow to anger instead. And it is his glory, the glory of a wise man, to overlook an offense. Don't write it down. That can be a good way to handle, particularly if we're to categorize 
minor offenses, unintended offenses, things like this. Finally, one, one point of contrast is that our, our forgiveness does not always result in reconciliation, does it? God's does. There is no sinner that He has forgiven whom He is not at peace with. But that may be true in the family of faith. It doesn't always result in reconciliation. The brokenness of our life would lead us back to an earlier portion of Matthew 18. In verse 15, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained a brother, reconciliation. If he will not hear, if he's unrepentant, if he digs in his heels, there's no confession. What do we do? Well, there's this eventual, we won't walk through it for the sake of time, but there's an eventual move toward identifying that person as someone who hasn't been forgiven. Because people who have been forgiven, remember, not only forgive, but they're confessors. They continue to acknowledge their sin. And so, we don't always have this reconciliation, so there's a move, because there should be. There should be. Why isn't there? This is a brother. Is he a brother? You're not a brother. There's this move toward acknowledging within the family of faith, identifying someone who is unwilling to continue in the basic, the first principle of the gospel that we repent and believe. He won't continue in that while he was never born in it. It's the equal opposite of the person who will not forgive, okay? Which leads us to our final consideration for today, and that is how do we interact with the unrepentant? What should we do then with the heathen and tax collector in Matthew 17, 18, 17? This is not an easy topic, We're talking about someone who has hurt, who has offended, who is wounded and destroyed and could care less or feigns repentance for the benefits of repentance, perhaps even taking advantage of so-called Christian forgiving and forgetting. Now, this is an extraordinarily difficult topic, and sadly, it's a it's a common one. So examples of this sort of an offense may be moving from mild to more serious. A businessman who is cheated by his business partner. Money is stolen from him, and he'll never get it back. What should he do? How should he think? How should he interact? What about a dear friend who lies about you, who turns on you, who speaks falsehoods, creates gossip within perhaps even your own friends? What about the supreme betrayal of sexual immorality in a marriage bed? Unrepentant. Don't care. It's my life. I'll choose to live it how I want to. What about Parents who manipulate and use their children to satisfy their own selfish desires. That's not the intended way of things. They use their authority and their strength for themselves. Or perhaps the sexual innocence of a young one is stolen, is snatched away from them 
perhaps even the very lives of schoolboys and schoolgirls snatched by evil men. Don't care. What should we do? How should we respond? How does God call us to interact with that type of evil? I'd like to point you to a text in Romans chapter 12. I think as I've meditated on this this week, certainly, and prior to, but I think the Christian response is clear. But what you call it and how you talk about it can be really muddy and really offensive. A lot of diverse opinions here, and, and we'll, I'll, if that's not clear, I'll clarify again in a moment. But Romans 12, with me in verses 14 through 21. Well, 14, and then we'll jump to 17. So, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We'll continue. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And here we go. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, reconcile, live at peace with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. From this text, it is very clear instruction to the household of faith in response to unregenerate or unconfessing people, that we would make the following commitments. I will not take up the sword. I will not take vengeance. Even though vengeance is right, justice is right. Remember, I am not the just judge. I am not the government judiciary system. It is not right for Christians to take up and to avenge injustice outside of God's system for it. So vigilantism would be what is restricted. That has not only judicial but personal implications as well. And I think they're very closely tied when he then moves on to say, if it's possible, live at peace. Um, and then later on, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Uh, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Be good to them. Hmm. In what way? What does he mean? And I think he is saying, at a minimum, you must not exact your payment from them. You will not steal their food and water. You will not withhold from them these things that would be common to give to a human being. 
because that's a minor count of taking vengeance, just getting at them. So I will not take vengeance. I will commit justice to God. You think you're angry about sin. God is angrier. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We must in Christ, entrust ourselves to his justice that he will exact the pound of flesh and more, remember, an eternal weight of punishment, an inestimable fee exacted for all of eternity. He will do what is right, even in a way that were you to take as much as you possibly could you would be a far cry short. God will accomplish this. So we must commit ourselves to Him. So we're not, we're not pardoning them. We're not reconciling. We can't be. There is no peace when there is no confession. There's not reconciliation. But I will also not embrace bitterness. I will not let this seed of evil take root in my own heart. I will not be overcome by this evil. I will entrust it to God. I will cast my anxieties upon Him, for He cares for me. I will trust that the end of Revelation is true, that He will come, that He will, in justice and in the fierceness of His anger, a sword will proceed from His mouth, a word will proceed from the voice of, of, from God Himself, from Christ Himself, and He will slay His enemies physically, then eternally, and there will be blood to the horse's bridles, and He will be covered in blood, and He will wipe His face, and it will be just. We could trust that. We could rest in that. What is that called? That entire disposition, what is that called? Is it forgiveness? Some would say it is. And if you remember a fit, Amy, it fits within the semantic range of the word. I am going to move away. I am going to let that be right there because God's going to take care of it. I'm going to remove myself from this, cut it off from me, not allow that to remain in my own heart. Something like that. People say it a bunch of messy ways, a bunch of hurtful ways that aren't often moving someone toward healing. But that is the idea. So perhaps you could call it forgiveness. But let us not mistake, if you are to call it forgiveness, do not equate it to Christian brotherly forgiveness. 
that would be tremendously wounding, theologically incorrect, doing something that God himself would never do. You'd be calling someone to release a debt that God has not released. Tracking with what I'm saying? So if we don't, so if we don't call it forgiveness, that's okay too. <laughs> um, because it could be described in other ways. Something vertical, something entrusting to God, a, a willingness to give it to Him. So the difficulty is that our word, forgive, is not wrapped up really with the nuance or the specificity of a fe'emi. So we do need to be clear and careful when we use it, particularly in this category, in relationship to each other, and clarify what someone means when they say forgive. Because God hasn't forgiven everyone, and that is good and just. Brothers and sisters, we preach the gospel most effectively when we model the power of forgiveness to each other. Uh, we preach a false gospel when we refuse to forgive each other, and we, when we embrace in bitterness, bitterness in our relationships. In a moment, we're, we're going to pray, and I did want to explain why we're singing the last song that we're singing too. It's called Onward March, All Conquering Jesus. And we're ending with that because of the note we ended on. To remind those who have been wounded by an unrepentant and evil person that Jesus is coming. And he will right these wrongs. He will heal in ways only he could. And we can trust him for that. Would you stand with me and let's pray.